Welcome to Macintosh and Mud. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Heat. A group of high-end professional thieves start to feel the heat from the LAPD when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. A heist. It's a heist movie. I like heist movies. This is one of the coolest heist movies I've ever seen. It's pretty good. It's pretty cool. I like it. This has been like one of those why haven't I ever seen this guy's movies movie for me. And this is a weird movie because there are people who see it and adore it and be like, you have to see this. You have to see this. And then a whole bunch of people that are like, what? This movie happened in the mid 90s? Yeah, it it feels very displaced from time. Because this is like the last movie that Pacino and De Niro did before they turned into old men. It's really true. I feel like both of them took long breaks after this. Like, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know for sure, but it feels like this is the last movie where you look and go like, yeah, I get why everyone's attracted to these two dudes. I feel like this is from much longer ago than it is. It doesn't feel like it's a 90s movie, but it is very much so. I mean, just by the fact that Val Kilmer's in it as well. But yeah, it's one of those movies of like, man, I've seen so much of those two guys. I haven't seen this. What? Yeah, that's honestly kind of true. I mean, after this, De Niro goes into Sleepers, Jackie Brown, Copland. He starts taking these more older, more distinguished figures. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the late 90s, he starts the comedy stuff with Analyze This. And then in 2000, Meet the Parents. And then Al Pacino. After this is Donnie Brasco, The Devil's Advocate, Any Given Sunday. It really does start to go in more older roles for him as well. Mm -hmm. This is a turning point for both of these guys. And it's the last time that we really see them do their original style of acting in a big way. Well, it's the last time where they were the leading men and that and it's the younger man. It's not an I mean, quote unquote, a grandpa's age story. Yeah. And and it's it's funny because like De Niro's really had like two phases in his career, sure. whereas Pacino's had three or four. Yeah. <laughs> They've gone through different kind of arcs, but they've been around forever. It's it's a weird time capsule in a way. And at the same time, the movie, the way this movie is made and the story is told is so very timeless. Mm -hmm. The fashion is very 90s. Oh, yes. But then again, I feel like you could set this movie in the 2000s and it would still feel pretty appropriate. And with a little bit of updating of some of the way these guys look, you could make this now. Oh, sure. This is not a story that requires a specific time. But oh man, telling a high story and being willing to explore every facet of the guys' lives who are doing the heist Mm -hmm. and trying to hunt them down it doesn't happen very often <laughs> no it's it's either we only focus on the criminals the 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 thieves or we only focus on the target or we only focus on the cop we never we rarely focus on the criminal and the cop and look at both of their lives as a whole it's usually one or the other in a weird way, this is a two hour and 50 minute movie. Mm -hmm. This is one of those rare instances where I will say that an almost three hour movie should be longer and then cut into pieces. <laughs> now, I say that knowing that in 1995, you never could have gotten away with that. No. 
nobody was going to commission a miniseries based off of a story like this in 1995. No, today this is this is a 6 to 8 episode miniseries with both of these actors playing themselves. I mean, that's just it. No problem. But it would be an incredible way because then you have all the time you need to go deep into these guys' lives because that's the only thing I'm missing from this movie is more of that. Well, the piece that we're missing is we get so much. I mean, again, I forget everybody's name. We get a lot of the De Niro character, a lot of the Pacino character. Get a little bit of Val Kilmer story, but if this was a miniseries, we'd have a whole episode just dedicated to him as well. Oh, Shaherless would have his own stuff, mm-hmm. and and we'll talk about a lot got cut. Sure. And I think Man's real whole thing with this movie was to try to tell the story from every possible angle. There's talk in the deleted scenes here about Tom Sizemore's character. Mm, yeah, and. And it would have been like five minutes, but you would have had a very specific impression of that character. Mm -hmm. And I think the really cool part is the compartmentalization of these characters. Sure. That's the coolest thing about this story Mm -hmm. is how you see how these guys, because they have such intense lives and careers, because these dudes are career thieves. Oh, sure. They they are not just thieves because of drugs or, Mm -hmm. I mean, they are in it because this is their job. No, I I get all that. And to watch them balance that with their personal lives is fascinating. (laughs) Well, I feel like we get flavors of that in some of the other mobster type movies we've seen. Here, it's a lot more cut. Like, it's a lot more, when I enter this room, I am now this person type of thing that's going on. But I, I feel like that is actually something that we see a lot in these types of movies. It's it's something we see a lot now. I don't think it was something that you saw that much of until this point. And The Godfather is a different thing because it's more of a Shakespearean play. Well, You're dealing with a sort of grand epic. Sure. This is not that. No, no. I, I wasn't thinking The Godfather. I was just thinking of things like Goodfellas. I'm thinking a little bit of The Sopranos. Uh, even though I have not really seen The Sopranos, I know enough to know. The compartmentalization is a really big thing in these stories. I think they made it much more distinct and pronounced in these two men's lives. I think so. I think also the the other thing is the Scorsese of it all, mm-hmm. which he has a very stylized way of portraying that. Mm-hmm. And... You're also dealing a lot with a very specific group of people, whereas this movie, again, we're very lucky to have Pacino and De Niro in this movie, Mm -hmm. but if you put two other actors in this of equal caliber, it would be different, but you would still see that same relationship, Yeah, and it doesn't require the sort of background. Like our background for this movie, yes, it's L.A., but it could be any city. Let's be really honest. L.A. gives it a fun, interesting backdrop because of the the way the lighting and the darkness and all of that stuff. But I mean, it's not as much a character as like New York is in Goodfellas. Oh, sure. And I think that's that's something that's unique to this movie where it just feels like it's all about these guys. I don't know. It's a really good movie. 
It is. It is a very good movie. All right. The budget for this film was $60 million. Yeah, with those two stars, that's what it's going to cost. With all these movie stars mm-hmm. and with all of the stuff they did for this movie, because I will tell you now, there were no sound stages. I love it. This was all done in and around Los Angeles. Okay. In the US, it grossed $67 million. Globally, it grossed $188 million. All right, so it made its money. It's a modest success, and it's- It's it, a three-hour film. It was going to be a tough ask for a lot of people, mm-hmm. especially people who just didn't care that much about De Niro and Pacino. No. But I will tell you, that was a huge part of the marketing campaign. <laughs> How could it not be? Because this is- the first ever time Robert De Niro and Al Pacino shared the screen at the same time. Mm-hmm. They were both in The Godfather Part Two, but they are in separate timelines, and so they never appear on screen together. They're just synonymous together. Yes. They're just two of those guys who you just put them together in your brain, even if this is the only time they're officially t- working together. Well, and they both they both became massive stars at the same time. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time, and they marketed it like a bit. I mean, I remember the marketing for this movie based off of that. Mm. I don't remember anything about the movie other than just De Niro and Pacino are going to be in a movie, and it's a big fucking deal. Notably, this is one of Christopher Nolan's favorite films. Big fucking shock. Nolan has stated on the record that Heat inspired his vision of Gotham in the Dark Knight trilogy. Yep, you can tell. (laughs) You can tell. I mean, to be fair, and we're going to talk about this because we're going to get into our writer and director, Mm -hmm. but this movie is the culmination of everything Michael Mann does. Okay. This is his style. It's, I think, more subtle than some other things that he's done, but like this is probably his masterpiece in a big in a big way well this is very realistic and to do it in another way would take away from the story because it's about these two men and if you get flashy if you get explosive if you get on a sound stage it detracts from that it becomes a production instead of a story it's also an incredibly violent film yeah it is pretty violent and the violence feels like it has real stakes for most of the movie. There are moments where you roll your eyes a bit. Sure, sure. But for what is very much an action movie, Mm -hmm. the action feels really tense and scary. (laughs) That gunfight scene is terrifying. That is, well, I feel like watching that gunfight today just seems like, yep, just any other day in America. Because I'm cynical and pissed the fuck off. But yeah, it's nuts. And at that time, sure, shocking to watch. And we will, we will talk about how they put that together because it's incredibly impressive. But I, it's, it's that he built these giant set pieces. Mm-hmm. And then he said, now we're going to do everything we can to make you feel like this is realistically possible. It reminds me of that one scene in True Detective that is like a 23 minute tracking shot that you just like, okay, this is our playground. This is these are the points we got to hit. Let's go. I mean, it it's one of those sequences where it was not shot in one and it is not edited to make it look like one, but you can tell 
the way it was staged and the way they choreographed things was to make it progress as though it was one. And that is an attention to detail that is fabulous. And I liked it. Yeah, there's so that's the other thing about this movie. The attention, the care, the level of detail and thought put into how they dress, how they look, how the robberies are staged, how scenes are shot. All of it is so incredibly thoughtful and precise, Mm -hmm. which just again, these are very precise men. So it's incredibly good to have a story set around them that way. I like the precision. It's really good. All right. Well, let's first talk about writing. And we will get into a gentleman named Michael Mann. Okay. Now, it's really weird because I think some people don't know this guy's name. But you definitely know some of the things he's done. Okay. Uh, Before this, writing-wise, he did a lot of television writing. He created the original series Vegas. And then wrote Thief, The Keep, Manhunter, the original version of Red Dragon, Mm. executive producer of Miami Vice, okay, a TV movie called L.A. Takedown, which put a pin in that, and then The Last of the Mohicans. Mm. After this, he wrote The Insider, Ali, Miami Vice from 2006, and the mob movie Public Enemies. Okay. Coming soon, he is working on a biopic of Enzo Ferrari. Oh, okay. And a mob movie about the rise of the Chicago mob in the 40s and 50s. Cool. And he's got lots of other stuff going on. Sure. So, I mean, cop shit is his bread and butter. That's his lane. In a very intriguing way. Oh. What do we think of Michael Mann's writing of this movie? Well, you say that it's like either he's the kid of a cop or he was he was in jail for a minute. No, it's it's <laughs> neither of those, and it's going to be interesting to talk about. Okay, um, it's good. There's a shorthand to the way his characters speak, which is very informed. They all, without it ever being so obscure that it feels like a a convention. No, no, it's not like um like when we watched Break. It's more of you get that sense these people know each other. Uh, they they have their own language and they know what they're talking about. And you also get the sense that the cops know the criminals. Oh, yes. And talk to the criminals. And that's a fascinating part of the plot that rarely gets touched on. Because it's not that interesting. It, it's not unless you're doing a story that talks about it like this. think it's that oh i think it is when the whole movie because this whole movie is not pinned on they know who the thieves are oh sure the whole movie is catching them that's the whole point of the movie and that's the fascinating thing is how are you going to catch them because they're that good at not getting caught like that's where the fascinating part is Mm -hmm. and yes it's also an excuse to put robert de niro and al pacino in a scene together but yeah a whole lot of work has to go into building the plot to that point because otherwise it, it it just doesn't work. Like to me, that is one of the very fascinating things that this movie tackles. And I think it's right in a huge way is how these guys interact with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, when they know they're being watched, when they think they're being watched, 
when their guard is down, all of that. That's fascinating. And it doesn't get involved very much because like you say, when you're just making a straight up heist movie, that's not something you touch on. But that's not what this is. And I just think that's something that he figured out for this story so well. (laughs) Okay, well, this had been a in this had been a very long time project in man's book. He had actually written this before he ever made his first movie Thief. Okay. Going as far back as The Keep in 1983, he said it was fully written. Hmm. After making Thief and of course getting that directorial experience, he revised his script, but he hadn't wanted to direct at all. He wanted somebody else to make this movie. Okay. And at one point, he pitched it to Walter Hill, the director of 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, and Last Man Standing. Okay. But Walter Hill turned it down. Mm. Now, I mentioned L.A. Takedown. Okay. This is technically a remake or rework of L.A. Takedown. Okay. That was a television movie made in 1989. It had a much smaller production value. And because it was a two-hour time slot, it was solely the action pieces. Sure. It was all of the setups and everything. Mm -hmm. It was maybe intended as a TV pilot. Nothing materialized. And so while Heat went through six months of pre-production and a near four-month shooting schedule Mm -hmm. to get all of this done... L.A. Takedown had 10 days of pre-production and a 19-day shooting schedule. All right. So it's like the student film version of this movie. (laughs) According to Michael Mann, it was like comparing, quote, freeze-dried coffee to Jamaican Blue Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, while it is clearly not the best product, Mann looks back on it and thinks it was the perfect opportunity because once he didn't really want to do a TV thing, Mm -hmm. but he ultimately figured out, wait, I can use this as my test run. Sure. I can figure out what works and what doesn't. And eventually he just decided to use it as a blessing in disguise. It's like his out of town preview version of it, his. It, it's one of those weird things where he just went like, well, it's money. Like yeah. I'm I'm gonna get paid. But more importantly, I can figure out what parts of this work and don't. Yeah. So that I can go make this better down the road. And tell the story the way I want to tell it. Man used Dennis Farina, who is the very famous character actor you might know as Nick's dad on New Girl, as a consultant because he was a former Chicago police officer. And this story is based around Chicago crime. Mm. Now, Michael Mann said that he wrote this as a tribute to a friend, Chuck Adamson, who is a detective in Chicago. He had obsessively tracked and killed a thief named Neil McCauley. Okay. Who he had once met without any violence occurring. Okay. Adamson, who was a longtime Michael Mann collaborator, provided him info and stories for Thief, Miami Vice, and Crime Story, which was a series he did with Dennis Farina. Okay. McCauley was a professional robber with whom Adamson had crossed paths. They ran into each other while getting their dry cleaning one day. And had a conversation over coffee similar to the one that we see in the film. The warehouse scene where an officer makes noise and tips off Macaulay, that also happened in real life. However, the real life Macaulay was killed during a grocery store robbing similar to the bank heist where heavy weapons were brought out and Adamson's team was tipped off. Mm, Okay. It wasn't as high profile crime, but he was a career robber. So that helps. (laughs) But that premise of the cop and the criminal meeting in this moment and having a heart to heart, that was the centerpiece of the film. 
Well, it, it is the centerpiece of this film. I know. I mean, like, here's the thing. I don't so much hear about heat. I hear about the scene. The coffee scene? Yes. Which is a fabulous scene, but it's not as good as people hype it up to be. I think it's exquisite. I, however, didn't have the hype for that. The hype I had was for the gunfight scene, which I've seen in clips before. Yeah, see, I had the hype for the coffee scene. I don't think the coffee scene is a showdown. I think it's just two really good actors doing really good acting. Well, the thing about that scene is it's two people sitting having a conversation and it goes on for about 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. That's a long time to hold an audience attention. Held my attention. It did. No, it, it did did its job. Just in terms of acting, scene writing, filmmaking, play or or film. That's a long fucking time for two people to be stationary. Yeah. And the only thing happening is a conversation. Yeah. It's not like, you know, the kitchen's going on fire and 10 people are coming up to talk to them. It's not like the scenes in diner where there's a lot happening between those people just sitting there talking. Yeah. I mean, and and that I I get. I, I think the problem is people hype this movie as, oh, it's so iconic. It's not. No. It's not an iconic movie. It's an incredibly well-crafted. Yes. And I'm kind of happy that I didn't have as much like super, oh my gosh, it's so iconic hype over it versus people just being like, this is a really good movie. Because that's what it feels more to me at. Mm -hmm. It's just, this is an exquisitely crafted movie. It's not like Goodfellas. It's not like Taxi Driver. It's not like The Godfather. You're not going to get these iconic moments from it. Uh Uh-huh. But this ride is going to be one of the best ones you ever go on because it's just really well done. That to me is, I think, the difference here. Kind of like that, that it's it. there's no one moment in this movie that makes me go, oh, shit, that moment. It's like, no, it's just the whole thing is so cool. <laughs> Wayne Grow was also based on a real Chicago criminal. He had ratted out some influential Chicago criminals. He went missing and was found in northern Mexico, nailed to the wall of a shed. Okay. <laughs> Real life can be even more violent than the movies. And Nate, John Voight's character, is based on former career criminal Edward Bunker, who was a um, a consultant, but also played Mr. Blue, the older thief in Reservoir Dogs. Okay. Okay. Let's now talk about our director, Michael Mann. A plus work. <laughs> uh, before this, he directed all of the things we said before. The two movies that he directed that he did not write were the movie Collateral with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Oh, okay. Which is an awesome movie. I've never seen that one. And his most recent directorial effort was Black Hat with Chris Hemsworth. Oh, okay. And coming, he is planning to direct those aforementioned biopics, along with he just exec produced Tokyo Vice on HBO Max. Oh, yeah. I've heard really good things about that, except for it's got Elhort. Yeah, yeah, we know. But Ken Watanabe. It's, yeah, it's got Ken Watanabe, so... And he makes great crime stories, like... He does, so... I'm curious. <laughs> Michael Mann makes good shit. I'm curious. We're in favor of his directing. Yeah, he did a great job. It's great. So many directors do dark. Yeah, he didn't go dark. Well... Like, I know, visually, just dark. His whole style is dark, but he does it in the most beautiful way. Doesn't come off as dark because we so many of those scenes take place outside. It's all natural lighting. There's something about the way he shoots. It feels like a noir, but it never feels old. Like it never feels dated and hacky. He he has 
an almost cinematographer-like eye to those panned out shots. He loves LA too. Oh, he loves Clearly. LA. He very much sets an environment with his shots, which again is why it's very cool that he did locations instead of sound stages. And just, you know, the way he chose to light LAX with the lights coming on as the planes land and, and you know, Pacino speeding through the night to try to track down Macaulay. And you're just like, all of this shit. It's so, it's just fucking cool. It is cool. It's so fucking cool. <laughs> he reportedly turned down a plan to shoot a biopic of James Dean in oh. favor of finally getting to direct this movie. That was the right choice. And as we said, not a single soundstage, which is just, that's bonkers to me. That is, it's awesome, but it is bonkers. For, for some of the scene setups that we have in this movie, mm-hmm. you're asking a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Mann stated that Neil's gray suits were designed to help him blend into a crowd and not draw attention. He also made sure that Neil's collars were perfectly starched because they would have been perfectly starched in prison. Michael Mann also spent time with inmates in Folsom Prison to ensure his portrayal of Macaulay and the thieves was accurate, and he also had his actors visit the the same career criminals at Folsom to prepare for their roles. On the other hand, Vincent's Armani suits and slicked hair are an homage to then-Lakers coach and now Heat GM Pat Riley, the same man who was the inspiration for Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. Okay. I like, though, that it's a much more toned down version of that for Vincent Hanna. Mm-hmm. Like Pacino going full Gordon Gecko would not work. No. Especially not in 1995. No. Nope. But his panache and his style are fascinating <laughs> to throw on a character who has a really deep, strong moral compass. Yeah. Like to a fault, his moral compass is strong, <laughs> but he's also got a lot of flair. Which, some of that was Pacino's choice. We'll get into that when we talk about the acting. Of course, the robbery shootout is now celebrated in movie lore. All of the actors underwent power weapons training, given the safety needed and the use of high-powered weaponry on screen. But it's man's attention to detail that really make this scene work. Instead of dubbing the gunshots, man had mics placed all around the location, so the audio was live. Awesome. In its time, there was no other gunfight shown on screen that had that kind of sound. That's awesome. I love that. And it is incredible. The power of the gunshots in that sequence are half of the reason it's as terrifying as it is. Because you realize how loud these rounds sound when they're fired off of echoing city blocks. (laughs) Yeah. It's nuts. Man directed the actors playing detectives to aim deliberately and keep their rifles set in semi-automatic mode. Mm -hmm. The thieves, on the other hand, fired in fully automatic and had no regard for bystanders. And in fact, he shows certain bystanders getting hit as part of the fight. This was to show that the police were taking care instead of the robbers willing to do anything to stay safe. Also, at the time, detectives would have only had access to semi-automatic weapons. Mm. The detail and care of staging it so that you see that difference. Yeah. And it's not a judgment call on anyone. It's more a, these guys would do it this way. And the thieves, you know, the the, the cops are going to do it in a very strategic way. And the thieves do not care. 
their only objective is getting themselves out of it. Yep. And it plays. Oh, it does. <laughs> you see and feel that through the whole scene. Oh, absolutely. And other directors would have never done that. They just would have done a gunfight. They do now because of this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We don't get a John Wick unless Without this movie this. gets made. Absolutely. Completely agree. And uh, it, this is also a movie that I think in a lot of ways changed how directors thought about how to stage these things. Well, and I, I think it also showed them not just the staging and that people, you know, thinking about the fact that people think about whether or not something makes sense and that can pull someone out of a scene. But also that whole you have you you have two different styles happening here. There's that there's the police force and there's criminals. And you have to think about how you're going to make those guys do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they wouldn't have they they wouldn't have paid as much attention to that. I know. That's it's great. No, it's awesome. To achieve the realistic damage of the gunfire, several cars, several police cars were taken to a firing range and shot with rifles with live ammunition. The bullet holes were then patched with Bondo and then blown open with squibs while filming the scene. Ooh, all right. Smart. Oh, yeah, that's great. For each take of the scene, about 800 to 1,000 rounds of blank ammunition were used. Yeah. Which is nuts. I mean, on the semis, yeah. <laughs> and filming was made even more difficult by the fact that they were only allowed to film in the area on weekends. Yep. God. I mean, we talked about like the massive like setup of speed and with the bus, but then you have this. I think what's so interesting is that you you need the same amount of effort to make this movie that you did for speed. Mm-hmm. Yet this movie feels so much more intimate. Oh, yeah, it is. But you need the same amount of effort to convincingly tell this story. Oh, absolutely. And that's I think that's the other thing that's so cool is just like. He was willing to go as far as he had to to really tell this story, mm-hmm. which is admirable from a filmmaker because a lot of them will crap out. <laughs> They'll tap out when it gets too difficult. And he was he he waited like 20 years to make this movie. He was going to do it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. The final gunfight between Vincent and Neil was filmed on an actual approach runway at LAX. Okay. However, the lighting was changed. When planes come in, the lights do not turn on. That would blind the pilot. Sure. But they did that for the effect sure. of having the lighting, which is just so good in Very that cool. last scene. Yeah. Um, and the runway is still there. It was moved just a little bit over, but that stuff is still there. Cool. When Neil and Edie talk about having a future together on a terrace, Michael Mann and director of photography Dante Spinotti wanted the LA nightscape in the shot. Now, you will notice the green screen in HD. We noticed it. It was pretty obvious. But I love that he did this. They filmed in front of a green screen, and then they filmed the background with the camera at three frames per second to try to have the exposure high enough that it would match the foreground of the actors. That makes sense. I imagine on film stock in the 90s, it probably looked seamless. And in HD, it doesn't look the same anymore. But I love the fact that he was like, we're going to get it as close as we can. Mm. That's smart. Yeah. (laughs) And finally, Michael Mann refused directing credit for the television version aired by NBC. To allow the film to fit a four-hour time slot, Michael Mann offered to add 17 deleted minutes of film. He said, look, I've got extra footage. 
let me let you show the whole movie with extra stuff so that it can fit the full timer. Sure. NBC instead cut nearly 40 minutes of the film to get a three hour time slot. Mm-hmm. Michael Mann refused the credit and said, you can call it a Michael Smithy or an Alan Mann movie. Mm. He's like, this is not my movie. Fuck you. Fair. Fair. Because <laughs> here's the weird part. This is a two hour, 50 minute movie. I don't know where you cut anything to tell this story differently. I don't know what you cut. I, I know what you cut. You cut all the stuff with Natalie Portman. Well, here's the thing. Fair. Here's the thing. It's great color for Al Pacino's character. If you remove it, you lose nothing from this movie. And I think for me, that's where I'm like, I instead want it to be more because then I want you to actually have the time to explain what's really going on with her. Well, what I want from more of that is I want more of her relying on him. I want the more of the example of the fact that like he's invested in this relationship, not just because he likes her mom, but because he's invested in her. Yeah. And she is equally invested in him being the only father figure around. But the movie that we watched, if you're going to cut something, that's what you cut. I mean, fair, but <laughs> I, I props. I to like my- it in there, but <laughs> <laughs> well, props to Michael Mann, though, for being like, fuck you. This is not my movie. This is not my movie. <laughs> OK, now let's get into it. Mm. The showdown. The show- oh. That's literally what they called it. Yeah, OK. Michael Mann never had a doubt about these two lead actors. Sure. These were his first choices. He sure. wanted the chance to get to put these guys together. Yeah. De Niro was the first to read the script. He showed it to Al Pacino, who was instantly interested. They both loved it. But our first guy is Al Pacino. Okay. Playing Lieutenant Vincent Hanna. He is an icon. We have discussed him before in Dog Day Afternoon. He's an incredible actor. Kind of a dick. What do we think of Al Pacino in this movie? He's he's great, but he's not the superior. He doesn't have the superior performance here. I mean, I feel like I feel like they're pretty level. They're very they're evenly matched. And they're doing very different things. What's interesting here to me is that Pacino has got his bombastic character choice. Mm-hmm. But he's also got all those layers of subtlety that we've seen from him early on. Sure. So he's still got that like what we the the sort of joke we make about Al Pacino mm-hmm. because some of the choices he made for the character mm-hmm. play into those jokes that he has as like the trope of who he is now where it's just yeah. wild outbursts for no reason. Mm-hmm. But he's layered so much on top of it with this role. Mm-hmm. It's one of the coolest things to watch an actor portray somebody's process in real time and you see it all the time with Vincent. The second he's on a crime scene, you see the gears moving in his head. Yeah. And in the best way. And while it is a little off-putting and weird that he has outbursts, the thing that's so cool to me is that he almost always does it to throw somebody off. Mm. Every time he has one of those outbursts, he has somebody in the room thinking they've got something up on him or trying to keep something from him, and he immediately throws them off their game. Every time. But when he deals with Neil, he doesn't do any of that because he knows he can't throw this guy off. He knows that's not going to work. Well, they're they're evenly matched. And I think that's just so cool. Um, I will say that Pacino stated in early drafts, Vincent had a cocaine habit. And so in the process of building the character, that's how he included the sharp, bombastic outbursts. Okay. That's where he decided to come up with that. But like I said, 
the way he does it in the movie, I feel like I noticed where it was like, he's always doing this as part of his technique of getting information. And he's never doing it when he's trying to evaluate things. He doesn't even, the fact that he's this like off kilter at times, but he doesn't explode on that cop. Yeah. And when he runs Natalie Portman's character to the hospital, he's fully in like, I'm in crisis mode. I got to take care. We're doing good. He's level-headed in a crisis. When he needs information, that's when he goes off the deep end. Mm. And it's just, there's so many levels to what he's doing here. And going after this point, he plays a lot more one-tone characters. Yeah. This is still the Al Pacino that I love watching, who has all these different layers within the characters he does. Like, that's where I go. I don't, I, I totally get where you think De Niro is better. But I think they're even because Pacino's putting so much into this. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. It's all Bobby. Well, it's all Bobby De Niro. Bobby's also great. So Bobby's amazing. Here's the thing about Pacino: when I watch him, I feel like I can see the the strings on the puppet being pulled. Mm. I see, I see the work behind it. I don't see that with Bobby. That's fair. That's fair. And, and I they, like uh, Al Pacino. He he does a great job, but I don't I just see the performance with De Niro. <laughs> I, and it's it's better. According to both Michael Mann and Hank Azaria, Pacino's outburst of because she's got a great ass. I just why'd I get mixed up with that bitch? Because she got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. Jesus. Was completely improvised. Yeah, that sounds about right. Azaria stated that, quote, it scared the hell out of him, unquote. And his shock in that scene was not acting. It was just pure shock. All right. <laughs> I like it. And purportedly, Al Pacino had a full facelift before filming. Yep. <laughs> This is the best he looked for a long time after this, I, I will say. I mean, he does look very good in this movie. Okay. So I, I really like Pacino. I really think he's doing a great job here. I didn't feel that as much as you did, but I also get that. That's pretty common for Al Pacino versus Robert De Niro as Neil McCauley. It's just amazing. Raging Bull, Taxi Driver. God, he's so good. Amazing. He really is. They they are very different actors. Al mm-hmm. really needs a lot of work and investment and really wants to find a through line. Mm-hmm. And Bobby's just his method. Mm-hmm. But Bobby makes it feel effortless. And God, he does a great job in this movie. Even, even the stuff with Edie, which at first feels weird. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, He's convinced you that, no, he really loves this woman. He has fallen for this woman. Oh, yeah. You really feel it. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. If she wasn't in the picture, his choices at the end, he wouldn't have delayed going to go find that guy. There would be none of this. But, I mean, he he makes you believe every single part of this character. He was very conflicted. And, yeah, when he's... On the screen, I just see the character. I don't see any effort behind it. I don't see somebody who's trying. For, like, he's just very relaxed in what he's doing. And, like, when he's conning, when he's planning, he is very relaxed. Even when he's talking to the chick, he's 
he's he's he's talking to her like she's a mark and then he realized like i don't have to worry about her i can relax and you see that change because that's him switching into a different gear and there's a level too where i wonder is it easier script wise or just motivation wise to be neil than it is to be vincent Mm -hmm. maybe there's a level of that but i mean it's just an exquisite performance Mm-hmm. I think they're both near perfect. <laughs> I have a hard time deciding who's better because I feel like they're they're two parts of a whole in a lot of ways for this movie. Nah. Well, whatever. According to Al Pacino, Robert De Niro felt the restaurant scene between Hannah and Macaulay should be completely unrehearsed because it would play to the unfamiliarity of the characters. Yeah. He wanted them to have no rehearsal going in and just film it. Yeah. Michael Mann agreed, and they all jumped in without prep. Michael Mann ran two cameras simultaneously to allow them to improv and be fluid and just continue to go. Sure. And they could simply experiment without any need for Michael to cut the scene unless there was a technical issue. Mm -hmm. That scene alone sold De Niro on the film. Yep. Mann, Pacino, and De Niro all admitted during, during press that that was the highlight of making the movie they were more excited about that one scene than anything else they did. (laughs) You know, we're sitting here, you and I like a couple of regular fellas. You do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're going to turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in? Then I gotta put you down. Cause no matter what, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate, not for a second. Maybe that's the way it'll be. Well, maybe we'll never see each other again. Well, these guys aren't theater guys. They aren't. No. None of these guys are theater guys. They're not theater trained. That's not what they do. This scene in a film is very rare. This scene in a play happens all the fucking time. Yeah. This is rare that you're going to have this much time of just acting. Straight acting with someone else. Yeah. And that's it. That's a huge challenge. And a huge opportunity. And to be fair, Robert De Niro has had a lot of those moments. Sure. But it's always been solo. Yeah, where it's it's all about him. I mean, yeah, we look at Taxi Driver. That's just him going off forever. It's fabulous. Love Taxi Driver. Yeah. Uh, Raging Bull, again, same thing. But this is, this doesn't happen. Or this scene happens, but there's 10 people in the scene. This is just two people at a table. Uh Uh-huh. That's a big fucking deal. And not only two people at a table, 
but it's not a scene where you're going to shoot one side and shoot the other mm-hmm. because that's how it's usually done because you're doing a quick one off. Yep. No, we're just going to let these guys sit down, run the cameras and go as long as we have a reel of film or we don't need to change a setup mm-hmm. and we're just going to shoot it. That's that's a dream. That's that's a challenge neither of them had ever had. Yeah. Pacino also stated in a one-man performance that when it came time to rehearse the final scene, De Niro told him, quote, no words. He still thinks that that was the absolute perfect choice for that final gunfight. In fact, from Al Pacino's line, gimme that shotgun before he runs into LAX, to De Niro's penultimate line of the film, told you I'm never going back. Six minutes and 22 seconds elapse with zero dialogue. Yeah. Because you shouldn't, uh, words just get in the way of what's happening. It's all face. They're just, all it is, is the intensity of these two guys Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who the last man Mm -hmm. surviving is going to be. God, it's good. That's great. (laughs) There's a lot of times where we talk about, and it's so overblown when you get two actors like this together. Mm -hmm. This is one of those times where, no, it was absolute perfection. These two guys nailed it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who could have been better? I'm interested in this list. Now, I will say that all of these were in the event that one or the other could not appear in the film. Sure. If they decided to turn it down. Had either actor turned down the role, Don Johnson of Miami Vice was considered as a potential replacement. Mm-hmm. I like Don for either of these roles, especially Miami Vice Don. Yeah, I could see that. But in that instance, he has to play the narrow role. I could see him as Vincent. He, he'd he been in Miami Vice doing that kind of role. Slick back, super styled. Mm. Uh, who could have been better? Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford as Hannah and Macaulay. Mel Gibson as the cop. Harrison Ford as the thief. Okay. Who could have been better? And they didn't specify who. Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges. Give me Jeff Bridges as Macaulay and Nick Nolte as Vincent Hannah. See, the reason I like that is because back here in the 90s, they looked the same. With the exception that Jeff Bridges, a little bit more baby face, a little bit more clean marine, which would play for Neil McCauley's character. Sure. Versus Nick Nolte, who was grizzled forever. But they look just as two two men in the world. They look very similar. If you told me they were like cousins, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't hate these options if you don't have these two legends. Sure. But you had two legends. <laughs> Okay, let's get to some of our other cast here. Val Kilmer as Chris Shaherless. We previously discussed him in the film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, yeah. And he also just appeared in Top Gun Maverick in a really sweet, adorable role. Uh-huh. He, of course, is not acting that much anymore because, of course, he has lost his voice. But what do we think of Val in this movie? I mean, he's great. He's Val Kilmer. He's Val Kilmer, so he's great. The hair is just whole character in and of itself <laughs> it's very refreshing when he cuts it off at the end of the movie i'm not gonna lie like, oh phew. oh god it's val there he is Whew. it's the attractive version of you <laughs> i mean he's he's great it's his vulnerability and he's always had that because he's got a bit of a baby face and then it's one of his strengths as an actor is that like he can be Iceman and totally cold and impersonal But what's really cool is that he has that sort of square jaw, super tough guy look, but could act so vulnerable Mm -hmm. and emotionally vulnerable. And in this, he really gets to do. Yeah. They let him. Yeah. 
like all the all the time they wanted him to be like either squeaky clean kind of leading man guy or just kind of cold machine and in this they let him just be a fucking mess because he's a fucking he is a mess like that hair tells you a story and the story is i'm a mess except when he's doing his job when he does his job he's fucking incredible because that's what he knows how to do the only thing he knows how to do Mm -hmm. and then in this weird way he he still gets to love his wife forever because she helps him get away yeah that is both a really kind of messed up but also really sweet scene like oh you figured it out like the best way to love her is to go away to get the fuck out yeah he's the only guy who survives i know (laughs) um bad he's just so good <laughs> val stated his agent tried to convince him not to take the role because the budget could not afford his fee this was coming off the heels of batman forever hmm. he insisted that he get the role and he asked man to compensate him instead by adding his face on the poster sandwiched between pacino and de niro and michael mann was more than happy to agree to that term that was a good move <laughs> no because like that poster is gonna be something people stare at forever who's that guy that's val kilmer he's build number three well val also said that he wanted to do the film so that he could call al pacino and robert de niro al and bob for the rest of his life fair <laughs> you've worked with robert de niro you get to call him bob val kilmer's like i get to work with two idols oh my god <laughs> yeah nobody who knows robert de niro calls him robert no no you call That's, him Bob or Bobby. Yeah, he's Bob or, or, or Bobby. Yeah, uh-huh. it's just, yeah. And also, <laughs> apparently, other than some restaurant stuff, which is not great, he's supposedly like one of the nicest dudes. So, I mean, he paid for the restoration of one of my favorite films. So, like, he's just a lover of movies. Yes. He, he's gotten a little on his high horse about the whole Marvel shit, but go back to your theater, Grandpa. <laughs> mm, mm, whatever. Danny Trejo has also said that Val told him on set that he refused an offer of $40 million, Mm. which we'll get into how ridiculous an amount of money that is later in the series, Okay, but to reprise Batman in a sequel because he did not want to waste his talent wearing a mask. Trejo thought that was hilarious because heat requires him to wear a mask during the robberies. I mean, (laughs) I get it. Val Kilmer initially balked at visiting Folsom Prison to talk with prisoners for character development because they were almost halfway through filming. Mm. So it wasn't a principal thing. It was more of a, we're already into this. I don't want to ruin my character. Okay. But after visiting, he was so affected by the despair and angst that reflecting on it, he felt like his last few scenes in the film would not have been as powerful as if he had not visited. His only alternative to coming back to the woman he loved would have been prison. And Val, having seen what it was like in that prison, reflected on that and used it in that scene. Mm -hmm. It's his best scene. You see it all over his eye. Yeah. Of like the way he smiles at her. And then the second he realizes, I have to go. Yep. And he's broken. (laughs) Yep. He's devastated. He's going to survive. Mm hmm. But it hurts. And I, he's, he is forever glad he took that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Kilmer was also incredibly experienced with heavy weaponry and ammunition. Mm-hmm. His father and grandfather taught him a ton about different types of arms on his ranch that he lived at. 
Mm-hmm. And he also got extensive weapons training at Juilliard, where he attended. He actually assisted the technical assault team in teaching the other cast members for the practice sessions. Oh. Reportedly, Marine recruits are shown Chris's rapid change of magazine in the gunfight as a proper way of completing the action. When Val learned this, he was actually thrilled that he had done it so well on screen. That's always good. Also, always love it in a gunfight when we see somebody reload. Yes, I suspension of disbelief. But like this is one of the things we love about the John Wick stuff because those fights go on for so long. You have to reload. You have to change weapons. And I we love the constant. This one's out. Now I'm going to use it as a blunt instrument. Oh, you have a gun. I just murdered you. I'm going to take your gun now. Reload. Yeah. Like it's part of that logic, Phil, that your brain wants to fill in. So if you do it for me, I can just enjoy what's happening. And you only have to do it once. But once you see that, everybody goes, oh, shit, there you like it. it and it mm-hmm. also invests you with the feeling of like, oh, shit, they're shooting real bullets. Yeah. And they're not. But it tricks your brain into going, oh, the stakes are fucking real. Sure. Here. Like this isn't just, you know, oh, I unlocked unlimited ammo. <laughs> Who could have been better? Mm. Keanu Reeves. I mean, yeah. He was originally signed to the role, but once Val became available while working on Batman Forever, man went with Val, who was a a bigger choice for him. Okay. Just from an appearance sake, Val's the right choice. They're both so good at playing vulnerable, though. I know. And I know later Keanu did Devil's Advocate with El Pacino. Whatever. But I'm not like, let's think about the poster. Val looks better on the poster with those guys. I don't know. If you could get Keanu's hair drapes and then make them haggard. I just really love that you finally used hair drapes in reference to Keanu. I I won. Yay. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) But seriously, imagine him looking really haggard Mm -hmm. and then buzz cutting him at the end or something like that. I don't know. I think Keanu could do a really good job. He might have been a little too young at this point. Of course he could have done a great job, but I think Val's the better choice here. Okay. How about Johnny Depp, whose price was far too high for the film at the time? Also, same problem. Same problem. How about Brad Pitt? Yes. (laughs) I will always pick Brad Pitt. Brad back then, when this same year we see him in Seven, where it's a very different Brad Pitt at this point. This is, I'm trying to not just be the hunky guy. Uh huh. Which is great. He started making weird choices and people are like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, I'm more than a pretty face, damn it. Which, yes, you are. No, yeah. Like he was clearly like, I want to play a tough guy in one of these worlds. He just got to do seven. Like that's the one where he <laughs> finally yeah. got it. And uh, he would have, he would have brought the same thing again. Just by a nose, I like Val because Val's a little bit bulkier, which means that the vulnerability plays even harder. Oh, I I don't disagree. I'm not. I I like Val. I do. I do too. Finally, here's a weird oddball choice: Jean Renault. Oh, I get that, but it's no. based off of the professional, sure. obviously, and the success of that. But sure. no, no, you put if you put Jean Renault in this film, you put him in the Tom Sizemore role. You make him Michael Chirito. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. By See, far. I'm almost up. All right. Let's talk about one of our ladies, Diane Venora, playing Justine, Vincent's love interest. Mm-hmm. 
Before this, she was in The Cotton Club, FX, and Ironweed. After this, The Substitute, Surviving Picasso, Romeo plus Juliet, The Jackal, The Thirteenth Warrior, The Insider, and The 2000 Hamlet with Ethan Hawke. What do we think of Diane Venora in this movie? She's great. You gotta have somebody really strong to go up against Al Pacino, while also the fact that Justine has to be incredibly raw and vulnerable, Mm -hmm. because Justine's dealing with a lot. Mm Like a lot. Her daughter is has problems and she is barely hanging on with this guy. Yeah. And despite all of that, she can go toe to toe with Al fucking Pacino. Mm-hmm. Like that scene when he finds Ralph and her acting opposite him. Oh, it's great. Oh my god. That scene is fabulous. Uh look, maybe hey, I should shut up! Ralph! Shut up! Well, why is it that I have to figure things out and explain them to you? What do you do? I say what I mean, and I do what I say. Mm, How admirable. You bet. Except none of it's about us. No. I may be stoned on grass and Prozac, but you've been walking through our life dead. And now I have to demean myself with Ralph just to get closure with you. And then just the sweetness at the hospital. Like the complete flip mm-hmm. where it's it's so volatile, but you totally believe that it's like these two people love each other. They are never going to work together, but they do love each other. Sure. <laughs> you can see where that love is. Wow. She's so impressive. <laughs> and all of the women. Yes, they are not big parts of the movie. But they are significant and important to the movie. They inform a different layer to the men. Which, isn't that great? But the story's not about them. No. But the women's stories in this film are meant to show us a different layer of what's going on with these guys. And they are very important to that, to those pieces. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, again, you could cut them all out and it'd be like, this movie's still amazing. Yeah, I think so. I What I love is that these actresses, I think, individually brought something to the table sure. that made them uncuttable from the movie. I think that's what's cool. I mean, if you cut them, it's a lot of dudes. There's just a lot of dudes. A it's just dudes. A, and a lot of white dudes. <laughs> a lot of white dudes on the screen. Okay. Who could have been better? Mm-hmm. Madeline Stowe, who had just appeared in Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans. Okay. I could see that. I, I don't know who else or if somebody auditioned, but if she auditioned opposite Al, they got the exact right chemistry. It works so well for the movie. Yeah, she's great. All right, next up, Amy Brenneman playing Edie. Man, she was a baby. 31, but okay. Before this, she was on NYPD Blue, in Bye Bye Love, and Casper. After this, she was in Fear, Daylight. She was the titular Amy on Judging Amy. A series of unfortunate events from 2004, 88 Minutes, The Leftovers on television, and she is now in the new show, The Old Man. Oh, yeah. What do we think of Amy Brenneman in this movie? She's got the shortest amount of screen time. So let's start there. She doesn't have a whole lot of time. Her character is very impactful. She's very good. She's too young to be playing opposite Robert De Niro, but Hollywood sucks. Um, She's lovely. I would tend to agree with you. When I saw, though, that she was 31 and as we get into it, I appreciated that it didn't ever feel like it was he's just with this younger woman. It's very much their characters do align in a way. 
no, no, it's fine. Dean Arrow was like fifty-five or something. Yeah, I was in his mid, early to mid fifties. He's here. definitely playing this as late forties. So, like in the real world, who gives a fuck? Because she's not playing this vulnerable young woman. She's just a younger single lady. Yeah. Um, I will say the thing. One of the things I like about her character, she's written in a way that when we meet her, I I am suspicious of her. Yeah. Which is why he talks to her the way he does, because he is also suspicious of her. But she's just this uncomplicated thing in his life. And she's great. Mm -hmm. And at the end, she is so incredibly confused and terrified by what's happening. Well, and and she's fully committed. She's she's realized who he is, what he's done. She has had to process all of that. And she has decided, okay, I will do this. Well, because he's also going to leave the life. Like, this is it. I'm done. It's time to go. Yeah. And she's like, okay, I can do, I can live with that. And that's fine. But then she has to confront it because he can't leave it behind. And, and once she realizes the stake, like, oh, this is terrifying. This is horrible. And then also his scene, which we will mention later in the trivia. Mm-hmm. But he leaves her behind. He does leave her behind. And you see the betrayal on her face. As <sighs> as he runs away, as you watch her run away. I mean, she's also just fucking confused as shit. It's not betrayal. I think it's more devastated. Yeah. Because it's not just he left her behind because it isn't that he left her behind. It's that he's dead. She knows wherever he went, he's dead. Or he's got that because this cop that she sees, he's never going to stop. So if he's gone, it's because I'm never going to see him again. Yeah, and and also it it's the thing of even if he's not dead, he's a ghost. Mm-hmm. He will never exist anywhere ever again. Yeah, he's gone forever. Brenneman was not a fan of the script. She thought it was too bloody and had no morality. Michael Mann convinced her that her view of the story would make her perfect for this role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is like, number one, nice turn of phrase. Number two, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. You think this movie's moralless and has no compass? That is why you need to play this role. Yep. <laughs> and finally, Ashley Judd as Charlene Shaherless. It's a weird last name. That's it. I think the implication here is that he's Irish. Like, that's what I'm getting here. And that he has like IRA connections, maybe, but whatever. No track. Before this, she was on Sisters on television. And was in Natural Born Killers. After this, A Time to Kill, Kiss the Girls, Double Jeopardy, Where the Heart Is, Someone Like You, High Crimes, Divine Sisters of the Yaya Sisterhood, Frida, Twisted, The Lovely Bug, Crossing Over, Tooth Fairy, Dolphin Tale, Olympus Has Fallen, Divergent, Dolphin Tale 2, The Divergent Series Insurgent, and Allegiant. And coming, she is going to be Anita Bryant in a biopic, because we cannot stop making movies about horrible women. Yeah, sounds all right. But what do we think of Ashley Judd in this movie? (sighs) I like that she's just as much of a mess as he is. Sure. Like, it's not like she's all sound and has all of her shit together. Like, she is an accessory to a lot of crap. She was was utterly forgettable for me. I don't think she's forgettable. I think this is very much the one character we don't get enough backstory. In fact, Michael Mann stated that the actual backstory here is Chris met Charlene in Vegas while he was on a huge gambling streak. She was a high-priced call girl. 
and Judd actually met with sex workers who had become housewives to get their perspective to work on the role. Mm-hmm. If we had some of that context, I feel like she makes a lot more sense. Okay. Unfortunately, because again, I don't even really blame Michael Mann here. Nobody was going to let him make a six-hour miniseries out of this. Mm-hmm. I think it's really just we didn't have enough time for her character. But I think, again, that last scene with Val, she's also so good. Mm-hmm. And I think what what she does really well is you can see her always running the game in her head. Yes. She is constantly figuring out, what the fuck am I supposed to do? The problem is that she cannot get past the one moment because she's also a fucking mess. Sure. I really do like the scene where Macaulay goes to the, the motel. She's like, you're going to go back. This is what you're going to do. And you can see it in her face like, that is the one scene where she acts really, where her performance is really good because she doesn't have any words, but you can see it on her face where she's like, I want to fight you. Like, how dare you tell me that I have to go back to this jackass of a human? Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, this is how this has to play out. It's the money. Oh, well, yeah. I, 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 I can't walk away from money. I have a kid. <laughs> I can't walk away from money. No, because <laughs> she, she has nothing if she doesn't try. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's. I, I do think she's good. I, I think the story's not giving her enough to, to do the stuff with, and I wish we had a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about a lot of Arpons. Arpons, random people of note. Tom Sizemore playing Michael Chirito. He is a former character actor extraordinaire, but because he is a an A-grade scuzzball and a massive drug addict, he is now in every B and C list movie you have never heard. Okay. Chirito actually had a bit more character development in deleted scenes. They showed him as an incredibly well-adjusted family man. Oh, okay. Which I think is perfect. If we had gotten that, like sure. one scene of him walking in, hugging his kids, hanging mm-hmm. out for the day, but he's just this deadly serious yeah. trigger guy. Oh, perfect. You gotta have one guy in the crew whose other life is completely vanilla like picturesque nobody would ever suspect that that guy in your neighborhood is essentially a sniper but he is the trigger guy oh, sure. and he is yeah, ready to do what he has to do <laughs> also terrifying when he takes a kid hostage okay that's terrifying but at the same time i'm like yeah nothing's gonna happen to that kid <laughs> well nothing's gonna happen to the kid what i think is interesting and again it would be made even more interesting if we see him as a family man because yeah. then you know he's never going to do this to this kid, but nobody else knows that. Exactly. And I think that's how I felt in that moment. Sure. Because it's like, these guys don't want to hurt people. They will hurt people if they have to, but they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? Also, Don Johnson. Yeah, maybe. William Peterson of CSI fame, who was the lead in Michael Mann's Manhunter. Okay. And Jean-Claude Van Damme. Ooh, interesting. No. Um, okay. Only if when he's a family man, he's using one accent. And then when he's doing his criminal work, he's using his actual accent. The muscles from Bustles cannot do other accents. I, I know. <laughs> I'm but, sorry. But that type of person, that works if that's part of the cover. Don's a better guy here because he can turn on the smarmy charm. Sure. And then he can go gritty if he needs to. I, I think that's your best option if Tom Sizemore is not here. 
Then we have John Voigt playing Nate. We talked about him for Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. Voigt felt there were a ton of other actors who could take the role, but Michael Mann insisted because he had always wanted to work with John Voigt. Okay. It worked out for John Voigt to take this. This actually turned out to be a pretty big career resurgence because I think Mission Impossible came out just after this. And he had had about 10 years where all of his movies were TV or straight to video roles. Mm -hmm. This really got him back into full on movies. Who could have been better? The star of Michael Mann's debut film, Thief, James Caan, lamented on the director's commentary to that film that he had not had the chance to be in Heat. Uh, R.I.P. James Caan. I know. Um, James Caan as Nate would have been so good. He, he would have been good. John Voight does a great job. Don't get me wrong. I I like... The hair is something else. It's something else, but he has that ability to do that really understated guy who's over everything so well. Yeah. Like, John Voight's got that stuff good, but God, James Caan would have been great there. Also, you get Caan and De Niro and Pacino. <laughs> You get a little Godfather reunion? Yeah. Yes, please. All right. Then we have McKelty Williamson playing Detective Drucker. He is Bubba Blue from Forrest Gump. Oh, okay. Very different role. Oh, sure. I like it. Wes Studi playing Casals. He was in Last of the Mohicans, Mystery Men, and Dances with Wolves. <laughs> Ted Levine playing Bosco. This is Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, an incredible character actor. He is a balding mustachioed detective in this movie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was approached for the role of Wayne Grow, but he did not want to be typecast because he played one of the most famous serial killers in movie history. <laughs> uh, so instead, he took a detective role. Mm -hmm. Dennis Haysbert playing Donald Breeden. Of course, President Palmer from 24, Major League. I love his subplot. It's a nice little pepper like seasoning on top of this movie. Again, in a miniseries, we would have a whole episode about Brady. Yeah. William Fickner playing Roger Van Zant, the incredible classic creepy-faced character actor. You might remember him as the bank manager in The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. You know him. Plays a total scuzzball in this movie. Yeah. And he gets his comeuppance, and I'm happy for him. Yeah. Natalie Portman playing Lauren Gustafson. This is her second major film role. Yeah. I mean, she's really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tom Noonan playing Kelso, the guy who gives them the bank plans. Okay. He played the actual serial killer in Manhunter. Mm. Not Hannibal Lecter, but the other guy. And he was the bad guy in Last Action Hero. Ah. Kevin Gage playing Wayne Grow. We saw him briefly as Billy Joe, the bar harasser in Con Air. His career stalled out because he was sent to prison for two years on a very controversial medicinal marijuana charge. Uh, he fought it extensively because he was growing with a medicinal marijuana license, but the feds busted him. Mm. During his time in prison, he was universally addressed as Wayne Grow by his fellow inmates. He's been making some other movies and stuff, but nobody should go to jail for pot. Nobody. Hank Azaria playing Alan Marciano. He's a pretty woman. We're getting lots of random Hank Azaria sightings. It was the 90s. This is what he did. <laughs> Along with The Simpsons. Danny Trejo playing Trejo. Mm. We also discussed him in Con Air. 
Trejo was hired with Edward Bunker as an armed robbery consultant Mm. because he committed a lot of armed robberies in his past. If you know anything about Danny Trejo, he was a career criminal, Mm -hmm. went to prison, got out, consulted, and then got into acting. In fact, Mann, while talking with everybody, introduced him to the cast. And after that meeting with the cast, they all liked him so much, Mann decided to pull Trejo in for the role. The character was originally named Towner, but they changed it to his name. Okay. This is one of the best Danny Trejo roles I've ever gotten to see because he's not playing the super macho machismo Mexican guy. Yeah, he's just playing a dude in a crew. Now he's the token, you know, Mexican gangster or, you know, he's the cool uncle in Spy Kids. (laughs) Yeah. Which I also love. Spy Kids is terribly underrated. (laughs) It's dumb, but that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be dumb. But yeah, and this, he's just a dude in a crew. I like it. He's really good. He is really good. It's it's nice to go like, oh, yeah, you are just a really good actor. You just get typecast a lot, and you're fine with that because you get paychecks. Yep. Henry Rollins as Hugh Benny, the lead singer from the classic era of Black Flag, on a run of significant movie appearances in the 90s. He shows up constantly, but there was a moment here in the mid-90s where he was like, maybe going to be an actor. <laughs> Martin Ferrero playing the construction clerk who gives Val the explosives. This is Gennaro, the lawyer from Jurassic Park, huh, okay. who gets eaten by a dinosaur on I a like toilet. It. I like it. Ricky Harris playing Albert Terena, the scrawnier Terena brother. He is a childhood friend of Snoop Dogg, who directed Snoop's videos for Gin and Juice, Doggy Dog World, and Murder Was the Case. And he was the voice of skits on Snoop's albums. He came to prominence on Def Comedy Jam. Tone Loke is playing Richard Terena. He is a rapper turned actor who you would know from Funky Cold Medina and Wild Thing. And also played opposite Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Rick Avery playing an armored guard. He is Robert De Niro's longtime stunt double. Farrah Fork playing Claudia. She was Alex Lambert in Wings and Mason Drake on Lois and Clark. Bud Court playing Selenko, the restaurant manager. That's Harold from Harold and Maude. Yeah, man, that feels like so many moons ago that we did that film. His hair looks exactly the same. I mean, it's the forehead man. Catherine Mullen playing Doreen Daniel, diner patron. She is a Muppeteer and has been involved in all of the Muppet films, Fraggle Rock, and Between the Lions. Okay. And finally, Xander Berkeley playing Ralph, who gets told to sit down by Al Pacino. In L.A. Takedown, he played Wayne Grove. And this is not the last time we will mention him. Okay. Trivia. Trivia. Up until 2014, fans of the film could visit Kate Mantellini on Wilshire and Beverly Hills, where the scene was shot. Mm. It was a noted spot for a stylish late dinner. So it was like an upscale diner type okay. thing. The restaurant had heat in neon above the door and a large poster of Pacino and De Niro in the scene. You could also request Table 71 or The Table to sit where the two met for coffee. Unfortunately, in 2014, the restaurant did close. Okay. Man filmed at the restaurant with the actual employees as extras. On the last day of filming, he surprised them all with a SAG card. Mm. That's a good move, man. Yeah. That's a good director move. 
The violence in the robbery sequences was cited as a model for several violent robberies that occurred after its release. Perhaps most notoriously is the 1997 North Hollywood shootout, where two thieves in full tactical gear and massive amounts of weaponry engaged in a military shootout with officers outside the North Hollywood Bank of America. If you've ever watched one of those cops on tape things on like Fox, yeah, they show this all the time. It's one of the scariest gunfights ever. Mm. And it was in particular responsible for a massive police militarization effort. But in media coverage of the event, heat was referenced extensively because of the similarities. So it's one of the pitfalls of getting a movie like this so on point Mm -hmm. is that there's going to be some real life stuff that pops up alongside it. In fact, famous French gangster Redouan Faid confessed to Michael Mann that he was inspired by both Thief and Heat to perform armored truck heists. Don't know how I feel about that, but you know. All right. The confrontation between Marciano and Vincent, Marciano being Hank Azaria, Vincent being Al Pacino, was filmed on a double birthday. It was Hank Azaria's 30th birthday and Al Pacino's 54th birthday. That's right. Hank Azaria and Al Pacino share the same birthday. Wow. This makes everything weirder because Moe from The Simpsons, which Hank Azaria voices, is based off of Dark Day Afternoon. Yeah, it's he's... Yeah, Hank Zaria said that Mo is his bad Al Pacino impersonation. That's amazing. <laughs> they have the same birthday. Awesome. You two actually contributed to the soundtrack of this film. However, it is under the name The Passengers, and they are collaborating with Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois. You can hear this as Al Pacino is driving to the nightclub with 30 seconds of instrumental music playing. According to McKelty Williamson, Michael Mann arranged for the cast to meet with detectives and criminals at an exclusive restaurant that he refused to name where they frequently socialized. Okay, yeah. Actors playing detectives had dinner with LAPD detectives and wives on one night, and actors playing thieves had dinner with career criminals the next. This was to give the actors a sense how real detectives and criminals interacted in public since that interaction is a big part of this movie. Oh, sure. I love that. That's great. Weapons trainer Mick Gould related a story from the British Army when his rover was ambushed and he returned fire through the windshield. This led to the scene where Neil fires through the windshield of the getaway car during the shootout. The Gladiator Academies that Drucker is referring to when he's talking to Charlene about her options, Chino and Tracy, are referring to the Doyle Vocational Institution State Prison in Tracy, California, and the California Institution for Men State Prison in Chino, California. Gladiator Academy being a reference to how such a prison would teach Dominic how to fight to survive. Mm. Neil McCauley is never seen driving the same car, implying that he almost always abandons and pays cash for or steals his next ride. Mm. So good. Yeah. During an interview for Japanese television, Pacino and De Niro were asked, Which role play, police or robber, did you do? De Niro said, police. Pacino said, police doing robbery. (laughs) Police doing robbery. I mean... I mean, it's factual. (laughs) It's true. The console TV man who witnesses the armed robbery that we see the police talking to was an actual homeless man that lived near the location. Mm -hmm. Shop owners would leave an extension cord behind their stores so that he could plug his television in and watch it at night. 
He met the producers while they were scouting locations, and they offered him the small role in the film. Again, you don't scout locations like that. You don't find characters like that. No. And it just adds to the movie. At the party, Bosco, played by Ted Levine, tells a story of a grade school friend named Raul. Michael Mann stated that that was completely ad-libbed, and he has no idea how Ted Levine came up with it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's one thing to have an ad-lib and like, you go, you know where the actor's going. It's another thing when you get a character actor like that and you're like, I don't know what the fuck they just did. It works, mm-hmm. but I don't know what the fuck just happened. Yep. <laughs> Residents of the apartment where Trejo is killed got curious after seeing the film and pulled up the carpet where Trejo was beaten and shot. They found residue of the theatrical blood still in the room. Oh, that's funny. And finally, we talk about detail. When Macaulay comes out of the hotel, It takes 42 seconds from when he sees Vincent to when he turns and runs. That means it takes him 12 seconds from when he sees Hannah and backs away from Edie to assess the situation and then exactly 30 seconds to leave her behind. Uh Guy told me one time, don't let yourself get attached to anything. You are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner. Now, if you're around me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a a marriage? That's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? Damn it, this movie! Right, right. (laughs) That leads us directly to our ratings. Oh, ratings? And for this movie... It's got to be a specific rating system. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of little things in this movie. I mean, you know, like hockey masks is the way to go. Mm, that feels a little too Jason, though. Duffel bags full of cash. Sure, I'll do duffel bags full of cash. I want, I want one. <laughs> it's a four and a half. Four and a half. Only because I want more. Mm-hmm. And I want us to actually have the ability to fully flesh out every single one of these characters. Yeah, I. I want it. I want more, and then I want it. I want a mini series instead of a long. Obviously, movie. yeah. And it's it's interesting because a lot of times we say, "Well, why didn't you do that?" And with like Scorsese and the Hoffa shit, like, yes, absolutely, that should have been a fucking mini series. It's twenty twenty one. There's no excuse. It's because he doesn't want to go for Emmys. He wants to go for Oscars. But in nineteen ninety five. It's just a factor of the industry. That option didn't exist. I know. I would love, not for somebody to remake this story, I just want somebody to attack a crime story from that same angle, where it's it's far less about the crime, and it's far more about the people and the characters. I don't know. I mean, it makes me think of The Shield. A little bit. Which is a lot like that. Um, it's Dirty Cops. The Wire doesn't exist without this. I mean, we love the wire. We love the shield. That was a journey. It's it's so of its time and timeless at the it's, same time. <laughs> it's like Blade Runner. Yeah. It's the thing that was made that spawned so many things. Yeah. And the only thing missing is just a little bit more, which is not a bad thing to say about a movie. <laughs> no. It's great. It makes me want to go watch more Michael Mann stuff. Which I've always meant to do. I'm just really happy I've finally seen this fucking movie. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> we did it, everybody. So let's make a really hard left turn. Yay. To 
comedy that was on my VHS shelf for a long ass time. Oh no, that, 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 that doesn't speak well. But you've apparently never seen. Mm-hmm. It's time to watch The Cable Guy. Oh yeah, I've never seen that. How? Did you see The Mask? Yeah. Did you see both Ace Venturas? I know I've seen both, but I only really remember the first one. How did you not see this movie? It's more of a Dumb and Dumber girl. This movie's incredible. I feel like this is one that my parents were going to let us see, but then it was one of those where they're like, we got to see it first and then we'll let you know if you can see it types of things. And then like, it was very much like, we're going to see this. I just don't know whether it holds up, but I do remember adoring this movie. I mean, I remember the hype about this movie. I know this like, I mean, Jim Carrey was already a legend at this point, but I know this was the one where he got like his fucking huge payday. That's all I know. Well, we will have to check out a bonkers comedy. All right. But before we go, we have some new movies we've seen. First, we saw. Nope. The residents of a lonely gulch in inland California bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. I mean, Jordan Peele can do no wrong. This is why we make movies. Yeah. Shit like this. I mean, it's not on the same level as Get Out or Us. I think it is. I think well, it might be better as a cohesive story. I don't think so at all. But I mean that in that it's not... It's not as creepy, and like, I don't know. It's it's a different kind of movie. This is his Jaws. I know people have said that. Like, it's a very different kind of horror movie for him, because the other stuff has been all about the horror of the internal processing, one of outside forces and the other of inside forces. This is all just a big blockbuster. I, I, I don't entirely agree with that. I worry if we talk too much about this, we're going to get into spoiler territory. That's very um, fair. <laughs> so I'll just say, like, I really liked it. I think it's very different than the other two, like, big ones. I actually liken it a little bit more to Candyman, which he didn't direct. He produced that. But it feels like it, it, it pairs more with that film than the other two. Yeah, and for me, I I really think about this movie. Without spoiling anything, it's just... Unlike those other two movies, which really do engage your brain a lot, mm -hmm. this one is way more of a ride. It is. But I, I think my favorite thing is the relationship between Daniel Kailua's character and Kiki Palmer's character. Like, I saw someone tweet out that I would watch the whole film over and over again just to see the two of them do, like, the hand slapping that they do because they're both just so fucking into it. And it's just great. And I got so much enjoyment out of watching Daniel Kailua play this very reserved character and be like, that dude has an Oscar and it's 100% earned. I love him. I love him so much. And I could easily see him getting a nod for this if there's not a bunch <sighs> of stronger performances. Uh, there's a lot to come and I totally get if he doesn't. I, if he does, it's going to be a filler nod. That's, but he's really good. He is really good. I mean, he's great. Kiki, I could see her getting a Golden Globe. I don't know about Oscar, but I could see a Golden Globe nod. Because I mean, she really is so charismatic. But even more than anything, this is a popcorn movie. Yeah. Like, this is a sit back, enjoy this fucking ride. Have your popcorn, cheer, like, watch it with people if you can. 
just that's the kind of movie this is this is this is a very different ride but it's so enjoyable and Mm -hmm. again this is why we have things called motion pictures (laughs) next we saw thor love and thunder Thor enlists the help of Valkyrie, Korg, and ex-girlfriend Jane Foster to fight Gore the God Butcher, who intends to make the gods extinct. I I mean, it's just a good time. It's a good time film. Okay. There's been a lot of people with a lot of complaints about this movie. Yeah. Many of them way over the top. I agree. I think a lot of people are just mad that it's not Ragnarok. Ragnarok is a crazy amazing thing and so i think a lot of people make the mistake of going to this film thinking it's going to be just like that and it's not well that's fair i think what's valid coming out of the criticism and i think what's become slightly apparent in how especially taika's talked about it Mm -hmm. is that this film is not as cohesive a story i mean there's stuff taika's talked about where it's like we didn't really plan any of this which is fine except that I I don't need you to match Ragnarok, but I was expecting a fully cohesive, consistent story, and I don't feel like I got that at all. I don't completely agree with that. One thing we just know, like, you know, I haven't read the comics, but I know, like, the two biggest storylines in this are from completely separate comic book stories. That's what they combine mm-hmm. them, and I think that creates a bit of a problem. So they have, I feel like they had to do a lot of fill-in. I will say that without spoiling anything, I think where they should have made a cut in this film was getting rid of the Guardians of the Galaxy. They're not in the film very long. They're not very consequential. I feel like they could have completely removed them or they could have just been a part of a montage of what Thor's been doing since Endgame. And that would have been fine because there is a bit of a montage. And then that's it. We don't need any more. But I also think one of the things that people forget is we've never had this type of superhero story. He's the first one to get a fourth film. We've we've got a superhero who we've seen them become, you know, their ideal. They've, they've gone through, you know, the trials of becoming, you know, Thor. And then they've had to bite, fight the big bad. And we've also seen him lose all these important people in his life. So what what happens to that guy after like the biggest battle is done? And Thor's a really weird character to do that with, but I think that's what makes him so fun because Thor is funny and he is goofy and Chris Hemsworth is very good at playing Thor. And Taika clearly loves Thor and loves... Taika's really good at mixing emotional and emotionally heavy stuff with humor. He just is fine, but I don't think that balance is in this movie at all. It is not perfect. It is not a perfect film. I've seen it twice and I enjoyed it both times. It was <laughs> fun. I had a good time. You know, full disclosure, Thor is my favorite character. Always has been. Even before the event, like these series came out, before the MCU existed, Thor was always my favorite. So I'm always going to love it. And I'm in love with Taika Waititi. It's fine. It's fine. I I will probably just go watch Ragnarok again personally Uh, Ragnarok's the best one it is the funniest most enjoyable in the whole MCU it just is and cohesive to me like I just yeah it's fine it's not as bad as everybody wants to make it out to be no but it's also not that good it's not a top 10 but it's not a bottom 10 okay (laughs) okay okay that's where we're at all right (laughs) so until next time have a good movie
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.